Hey there, I'm Liz Garafello. And I'm Lindsay Ware. We are Hawkeye and Linz. You're listening to the UMass IPM Fruit Loop, the podcast component of our Extension Fruit Team newsletter, Healthy Fruit. Today is May 20th, 2020. Our goal is to keep you in the loop and provide you with the ability to listen to the most up-to-date healthy fruit news while you go about your day. Let's go to Hawkeye for current degree day accumulations. Current degree day accumulations are based on data recorded at the University of Massachusetts Cold Spring Orchard in Belchertown, Massachusetts. As of May 18th, using a base of 43 BE, it's Baskerville-Eman, we've calculated 419 degree days. New estimates by Monday, May 25th, we will have reached 542 degree days, base 43 BE. Macintosh petal fall should occur between 439 and 523 degree days. And here's a briefing on upcoming pest events. At the top of the list, we've had our first catch of coddling moth between April 28th and May 4th, but not much coddling moth action since. We had our first catch of lesser appleworm and first flight peak should occur between 364 and 775 degree days. First flight peak of oriental fruit moth is also underway. Hey, Lens, do you know how hard these things are to say back to back? I'm tripping over my tongue here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also, uh, what's up with bud stages? Macintosh um, um, apple is in early petal fall. Honeycrisp apple is in full bloom. Crispy pear varies between bloom and petal fall. Redhaven peach and Rainier cherry are in full on petal fall. We'll miss those blossoms, but the outcome is fruitful. Speaking of fruitful engagements, Get ready to mark your calendars. A few meetings are coming up. This evening from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., the University of New Hampshire Tree Fruit Webinar for Commercial Orchardists is happening. Also, tonight at 6 p.m., the UMass Vegetable and Fruit Teams are co-sponsoring a Zoom Twilight Meeting. A forum on marketing adaptations in light of COVID-19. Be sure to register ahead of time. And Jaime has helped put together a series of webinars focused on the impact, monitoring, and management of invasive insects in Massachusetts. The first one is happening Thursday, May 21st from noon to 1. For more info on all of these, go to umass.edu backslash fruit under the events tab. Lens, you want to tell us about how John sees it? Sure. Thanks, Hawkeye. <laughs> it's... All know. right. Well, I... it's that time. Time to see things John's way for a moment. He kept it short and sweet this week. He wrote, I really don't have much to say, except relax a bit and enjoy the fine weather we have coming. We deserve it. By the end of the week, we will have a better idea how bloom went and our minds can truly turn to chemical thinning. But see Duane Green's and mine comments below on this subject. Scab and fire blight risk are low. Plum Crocilio are waiting on the horizon. Okay, let's talk more about insects. Hawkeye? Insect activity was not as high as we would have expected with the recent warmer temperatures on May 15th and 16th. Petal fall seems like it will take place without reaching temperatures conducive for high insect activity. As we mentioned earlier, although we did have our first catch of coddling moth earlier this season, not a, low, not a whole lot has happened since then. Uh, also, red-banded leaf roller densities are dwindling as well. All right, nice to know what's going on out there. Um, speaking of, I'm really excited about the farmscaping that Jaime mentioned in this week's Healthy Fruit. 
We know that sunflowers can benefit growers in many ways. They're not merely eye candy in the field. You're right, Lens. I thought this was really interesting as well. So farmscaping is a whole farm e ecological approach to pest management, particularly for insects. It refers to the arrangement of plants used for economic purposes, like cash crops, and insectary plants used for food and habitat for beneficial insects. Sunflowers provide pollen and nectar to beneficial arthropods, including pollinators and parasitoids and predators of insect pests. Sunflowers are listed in many extension fact sheets and publications as being excellent attractions for beneficial insects, and not just those important pollinators. They also attract pest patrolling birds. For more information on farmscaping or to learn more about the benefits of sunflower pollen to bee health, check out Dr. Lynn Adler's fascinating research discussed in this week's issue of Healthy Fruit. It's really cool stuff. <laughs> it is really cool stuff. <laughs> it is. is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can really get into that. We all could and should. Um, and should. <laughs> Next, we'll talk diseases with Hawkeye and Dr. Dan Cooley. Stay tuned. <laughs> okay, today we have the pleasure of capturing Dr. Cooley, or simply as we know him, Dan. We would like to include him in our conversation regarding disease. So thanks for being here, Dan. Great to be here. Okay. So first I want Liz to kind of tell us um, what her findings were in regards to scab and spore counting this week. Sure thing, Lens. Uh, so every week we do our um, ASCO spore monitoring in our funnel trap and our petri plate assay. Uh, the funnel trap this week produced, uh, I suppose, what you might call a mother load of ASCO spores. Uh, we were actually able to even see the spore with our naked eye. They were so uh, densely deposited on the slides from the funnel trap. Um, so too many to count there, but with the petri plate assay, we did wind up with about 205 ascospores that we were able to see. Uh, so what this means is that we really have an awful lot of inoculum out in the orchard ready to go for the next rain event. Um, right now, we don't have much rain in the forecast, which is a mixed bag. It would be good to have some rain for the crops, but you know, it's, uh, it's good to have a, a little breather from our disease infections. All right, thanks. And Dan, since this is kind of your wheelhouse, or one of them, can you elaborate on what Liz is talking about? Sure. The, I mean, it's interesting that we still have as many spores as uh, we do. The uh, picture that is in Healthy Fruit sort of looks like um, the reverse Milky Way uh, in terms of all these spores dense, densely packed. The bottom line is that I, I think that if you're just looking at NUWA, then you might be misled to think, oh, uh, 97, 95, 98% depending on where you are, indicates that, hey, we're pretty much done. Um, but in fact, uh, if we do get some wetting, then uh, there's going to be a lot of spores released. Uh, once again, I think RIMPRO is doing a better job of estimating the number of spores that uh, Liz is actually seeing. So you would... It sounds like you would suggest that growers depend more on RIMPRO in regards to SCAB than they do on NUA. Uh, I like it better. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, the big advantage, of course, to NUA is that it's, it's free. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it might be worth a, 
couple hundred bucks to uh, look in on RimPro. I agree with Dan. I think RimPro does a superior job of representing ascospore maturity and infection events in the season than you does. Yep. Nice. It sounds like it needs to be pretty detail oriented or just right on top of things as much as possible when it comes to scab. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, for one of the things that Liz was saying earlier is worth uh, following up on, and that is it would be good to have a little rain. It would be great from a scab perspective to have just a little rain, you know, something short and sweet that dried right out so that it managed to release the spores, but it wasn't long enough to be an infection period. Unfortunately, that doesn't usually work out that way, but uh, if, if that were to happen, then we could release all these spores and not have to worry about infection. Interesting. I think I've, that light bulb finally went off for me. Like, oh, that's why we want just a little bit of rain. So to basically you're driving them into the atmosphere so that you can get rid of them. Yep. Once okay. they're gone, they're gone. All right. Nice. So at this point in time, what is either one of you, what is your suggestion to our growers? Um, well, I think, I think as soon as uh, it looks like we have a potential infection period coming on the horizon, it's time to get out the best materials that are available for fungicides and use them. Um, so we've listed them in healthy fruit, so I won't list them off right now, but uh, it's, you know, get out your best um, systemics, your best single sites, plus uh, either Mancozeb or Captan and go on. So basically, one of you want to just jump in and give me your rundown on fire blight currently? So I think fire blight right now is kind of an interesting proposition. We're finally seeing temperatures that are conducive to the bacterial population growth, uh, but we're not seeing a lot of wetting in the future. And again, these, these diseases do require some sort of a wetting event to get them to the um, tissue that's susceptible for infection. So with fire blight right now, what we're worried about is bloom. We have an awful lot of open blooms still in the orchards. And again, the temperatures are good for population growth, but without the uh, wetting event to wash the bacteria down into the nectaries of the flowers, there's not any, there's not much chance for infection. So it's sort of, hard to say for me at any rate whether or not we really do have fire blight coming down the pike because there there's an awful lot of people who say well a, a dew event is enough to get fire blight started on your flowers or a fungicide application could wash that bacteria down into the nectaries but I, I don't know Dan is there a lot of literature or is there anything that really shows that that is a viable wedding event to cause infection for fire blight well, we've seen we've seen that uh, occur um, in, but I've only seen it a couple of times in pairs. So, uh, yeah, I've, the situation was such that uh, the weather was right to grow the bacteria, but it was not raining or anything like that. Uh, the grower went through and sprayed the pears and within about five days, all sorts of fire blight strikes all over the place. And if you went back and tracked it with Mary blight, it was that spray event that caused the, the start of infection. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's been a tricky year uh, to, to manage fire blight. And I think at this point, uh, the, the trickiness is going to be with the so-called rat tail blooms, the, those end of the season, uh, blooms that just sort of hang on, particularly uh, on 
younger, smaller trees, mm -hmm. you want to be aware that those can get infected. And of course, if they are younger, smaller trees, then uh, if they are infected, then you get more damage. So uh, keep an eye on how the EIP is tracking. And, and that's another thing I want to emphasize again, is that I really think that's the key part. If you're using NUA, it's that EIP row that you want to look at. And if it is getting over 100, uh, then there's a good chance that any wetting will cause a problem. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at that uh, yesterday and the forecast in that model was suggesting that uh, come Thursday and Friday, the EIP uh, value would reach and exceed 100. Um, it was interesting to note though that NUA was not estimating much by way of due on those days. So still no rain, not much by way of due. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been dry. Relative humidity has been down. Uh, so uh, that's something in our favor in terms of managing scab, or <laughs> managing scab, well, scab too, but fire blade in particular. Uh, and the, so, so I guess the, the, the bottom line is if we, if you break that EIP of 100, uh, I would make sure that something was happening if needed on those blooms that are still around on those trees that still have some bloom. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I think that's perfect. So okay. always, always interesting to hear everyone's perspective. I learn a lot just by listening to you guys talk shop. Uh, you, you know what was, I had, I did a thing yesterday with, um, the, uh, that group of Minnesota, Wisconsin <clears throat> growers, um, and, uh, they were most interested in focusing on sanitation and, and scab inoculum reduction, but they also had this guy that's an IPM consultant on with me and I learned a lot from him. I mean, he, he just, you know, what I learned what they look at as their important problems. It's always unique depending on where you are, different places, different things. Mm -hmm. um, so well worth just having the conversation sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. And scab from what I understand is like, it's been a thorn in, in grower's side for quite a while, right? Like <laughs> ever since, ever since they invented apples. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and by they, we mean <laughs> You're in your own blank on that one. <laughs> you know, I should, I should go. I, we train scab to be a disease um, and then go through the very, so really, if you look back, I don't know, probably only as recently as 120, 130 years, people could grow, uh, apples with, without using any fungicides. It didn't have any fungicides to use, but uh, it's over that period since then that we've really gotten into more and more problems. Years of conditioning, right? Yeah, yeah, training it. <laughs> High density conditioning. <laughs> training it, yep. <laughs> okay, um, so thank you both so much for doing that. I like okay. that a lot. Um, well, ha now, have fun. Well, well, hold on. We're going to talk about orchard wash. Oh, You're not oh off that's the hook right. Yet. <laughs> All right. So um, this week, if you did look at healthy fruit or when you do go and look at healthy fruit, you'll notice that there's a guest article about this thing called orchard watch. And this is a project that I've worked on some with Dan and John and also, but basically orchard watch is 
in the works and it has a lot of components to it. So I'll let Dan just kind of brief you on what that is or what it has the potential to be. Yeah, I, it's a it's a great project. It's it's got a lot of moving parts, and I think it's um, evolving as we as we develop it. But at this point, I think the key parts that we have are a bunch of weather stations at the Cold Spring Orchard. And one might ask, why do you need a bunch of weather stations at Cold Spring Orchard? And the answer would be, we're interested in knowing if uh, the environment, the microclimate uh, at the top, say, of, of our orchard, at the highest point in the orchard, is, is different enough from the microclimate at the lowest point in the orchard where it's surrounded by woods that it's going to change the disease and insect pressure in those areas. So in other words, if we fed the weather data from that station up at the top of the hill and the weather data from the station at the bottom of the hill into our prediction models for various pests, would those prediction models tell us to do different things? So that's, that's the purpose of that um, uh, from sort of a research point of view. But the cooler thing, and one of the things that, that Lindsay is really focused on, uh, is how do we communicate to um, the average person who might be interested in apple growing what's going on in the orchard? Uh, and, you know, what, what are the current pests? What does a grower need to do to deal with these pests? And, uh, and how do they do it? So, uh, different, different things. There's a research piece and there's, uh, an outreach piece to the, to, uh, people. Um, hopefully there's also some, uh, useful grower information in all that. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think it has a lot of potential for years moving forward. And if you want to find out more about Orchard Watch, you can read that article that John put in to this week's healthy fruit, or you can personally email Dan. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> um, or you can pick John's brain about it too. I know that some of you growers are um, used to talking with him or debating with him about various things. Alrighty. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Dan, okay. so much. <laughs> okay. I'll see you guys. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, that was great. Yeah. Well, enough about insects. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm loopy over here. Fruit loopy. Get in the loop. <laughs> I'm totally in the loop. <laughs> Round and round and round. <laughs> Enough about insects and diseases. <laughs> Welcome to the fruit loop. <laughs> All right. All right, so Dr. Green's Skinny on Thinning is more of an urging this week to apply a petal fall thinner if you have not made a thinning application already. Being that most of us are in a bloom stage of one kind or another, and next week's weather forecast is favorable for bee activity and fertilization of flowers, this makes sense, right? For more details, read this week's Healthy Fruit or visit our UMass Extension Fruit Team YouTube channel. You'll find some of Dr. Green's talks on thinning there. You'll also find some of John's thoughts on thinning in this week's Healthy Fruit. 
Don't forget to consult the New England Tree Fruit Management Guide for more details at netreefruit.org. It's time to talk small fruit. Our small fruit update is brought to you by extension expert, Sonia Schloman. Let's play Sonia Says, Lens. <laughs> All right. So because PYO is on everybody's mind, Sonia Says, MDAR has released their PYO guidance bulletin this week. To see the full text, you'll want to go to Farm Pick Your Own PYO Agricultural Tourism Activities. It's, of course, on the mass.gov site. So go to mass.gov and look for that Farm Pick Your Own document. And you also can download the form. The form. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> Download the farm. <laughs> yeah, download the farm. Just <laughs> As for crop conditions, Sonia says cold weather in the last week has caused damage in several crops. The full extent of damage may not be fully apparent for a few days as tissue begins to degrade. To assess the extent of the damage, you want to check both open and unopened flowers. Several crops are in or approaching bloom, which is a key time for disease and insect damage. Blueberries and raspberries can be fertilized now, um, but wait until post-harvest to fertilize those strawberries. June-bearing strawberry fields grow rapidly now with the warmer weather. Frost damage has likely occurred in many places across the state on open blossoms and also on unopened buds. Many healthy blossoms remain though, so harvest may not be greatly impacted. However, we can't bank on being totally out of the woods with frost. So keep vigilant for another week or so at least. Fields approaching bloom should be scouted for strawberry and budweevil, tarnished plant bug, and two-spotted spider mite. Bloom is the most important time to protect against botrytis gray mold and leather rot. Sonia says with all the water put out in the fields for frost protection, in addition to the rain events, the possibility is high for trouble with bacterial angular leaf spot. Sonia says avoid further wetting of the canopy, if at all possible, between now and harvest, and new fields are being planted. Summer bearing raspberry varieties are showing good lateral growth with flower, with flower clusters beginning to expand. New primocane growth is getting to be 8 to 10 inches in height. Sonia also says watch for evidence of raspberry fruitworm, tarnished plant bug, and two spotted spider mites, especially in high tunnels. As fields move into bloom, botrytis gray mold is the main disease of concern. For raspberries and high tunnels, powdery mildew is also a major concern. All right, for blueberries, there may have also been some damage to blueberry blossom tissue in some areas. Uh, blueberries can take slightly colder temperatures, plus they're higher off the ground, which helps keep them away from the coldest air. Damage is difficult to assess until around petal fall when damaged tissue is easier to see. As fields enter bloom, now is the time to set out pheromone traps for cranberry or cherry fruitworm. Protection against fruit rot diseases like botrytis and anthracnose is also important during bloom. For management recommendations for any of these insect pests or diseases, refer to the 2020 New England Small Fruit Management Guide. All right, so with all that said, I think it is time for me to go to the corner. So Hawkeye's Corner. You know, no big surprise, not a whole lot going on. We talked about this already uh, earlier in the podcast, but um, I did see European apple sawfly moving in and about the blossoms in a cider apple orchard this week. Um, they like those cider fruit almost as much as I do. The female, of course, is looking for somewhere to lay her eggs. 
not only does the activity of egg laying cause a scar on the fruit, but once those eggs hatch, those larvae tunnel into the fruit. Remember, we talked about that last week. Uh, so they're out and about, and they're going to be causing damage. If you're looking for clean fruit with no scars, you're going to want to think about that petal fall application for soft life. Thank you for listening to the UMass IPM Fruit Loop, the podcast component of Extension's fruit team newsletter, Healthy Fruit. Thank you to Dr. Dan Cooley from the Stockbridge School of Agriculture for joining us today. And thank you to all members of the fruit team, all the growers, and to our sponsors, OESCO, Orchard Equipment and Supply Company Incorporated, Norse Farms, the New England Vegetable and Berry Growers Association, and the Massachusetts Fruit Growers Association. Be safe and be well. You know, it's kind of, it's, but it's kind of cool that we had Dan as mm -hmm. our first guest speaker because he's kind of mentored so many of us, including some of our mentors like Sonia. Right. 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 Yes. When you did her, her, her masters with him. Yeah. I just learned that recently. So it's like, he's really kind of had a, he's, he's like the godfather of the fruit team. <laughs> That's what I should have referred to him as. You can, you can steal that. <laughs> All right.